punched till blood away. How many times will you make us stand here and beg for help? You can't fight for George Floyd and ignore the hate that's being done in the Asian community. What does it take to get a more in-depth look into the week's top local news stories? The debrief brings you inside for a one-on-one -on -one conversation with our reporters every week, right here, right now. The Debrief. Hello and welcome to The Debrief. I'm your host, Erica Byfield, in for David Ushery. It is all happening too often and it's not letting up. Asian New Yorkers attacked on the sidewalk, on the subway, while simply eating lunch. And it keeps happening. Some say that there's a common thread. They believe that most of the suspects behind these attacks are also people of color. But a few surveillance videos do not tell this whole story. This week, we're going to break it all down. The violence against Asians, the perceived conflict between them and black Americans, and the real reason behind many of these attacks, which is a crisis in itself. We begin with Chris Kwok, an attorney, member of the Asian American Bar Association of New York and an Asian American, Chinese American community organizers. Chris, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Chris, this is such a heavy topic. How are you feeling, you know, just in general, trying to speak about this? Um, tired, uh, you know, because we've been talking about it for a long time. But at the same time, I'm glad that there's media attention. And you are the expert we want to talk to about this because you know so much about this topic. You've spent your career kind of digging into this. Bring me, bring, bring me up to date about what you know about this. Um, you know, this is just the latest wave. It's connected to something that's longstanding uh, in American society and, and its treatment of non-whites. You know, so it's connected to uh, the treatment of African-Americans, Native Americans uh, in, in American sort of uh, history. So, you know, a lot of people are surprised, but it's just because I think they haven't read the history. Yeah, but I don't you feel like when you see these videos, when you see these images, it's just so shocking when you see people of color attacking people of color. I mean, how are you feeling as you're as you're trying to process this? Yeah. I mean, look, African-Americans, this is what Al Sharpton had said. He says out of every group in America. Right. African-Americans should know. Right. You know, uh, you know, like, you know, because they've been through the struggle. So they understand when they go through things. And the thing is, I think that it is a narrative because I think if we if we look at the stats, I think most of the people harassing or attacking are probably white. Not probably. I think the statistics show that they're white, but definitely the media narrative, I think it focuses on on sort of people of color attacking Asians, to be honest. You know? Why do you think that is? Well, it's a longstanding sort of media narrative. You know, if we go back to the L.A. riots, we talk about sort of the black versus Asians or the black versus Koreans. Right. You know, when we talk about the L.A. riots, but the L.A. riots happened not because of black versus Koreans. It was about police brutality, mm -hmm. about Rodney King and about their acquittal of the four police officers. I mean, that's at the heart of the, the, the riots back in 91, 92. Right. And so when we when we talk about L.A. riots, but we only begin to talk about black versus Asians, we've missed the whole point. But why do you think people are afraid to have that conversation? It feels like something. this is something that people are kind of yeah. whispering about behind the scenes. Do you feel that way too? That's the way I feel. I do. I do. No, no one, not no one, but like talking about race is still very difficult in America. And sort of, and for many Asian Americans, they don't have the fluency to, 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 to talk about it in a way that they feel confident without maybe feeling they've stepped into a landmine, said something they shouldn't. You know, so I've been lucky enough to study and sort of like work in race, right? So I can sort of maybe talk about it a little bit more confidently. Uh, but for many people in Asian uh, American circles, it's not everybody, but for, I would say most, 
they don't have the fluency or the experience to talk about this topic, an important critical topic to our country and to our communities, but they're not so sure they can talk about it sort of properly. So how do we change that? I mean, is this an education thing? Is it a, you know, the politicians need to say, all right, everybody, let's come together. Or are we hearing too much of that and not enough action? Well, I think conversations like we're having right now are critical, you know, and um, I think that, you know, having these conversations in public, honestly, uh, without sort of like, you know, with people who know what they're talking about and who are sensitive to these topics, empathetic to people's experiences, knowledgeable about our histories, about how they are intertwined, how they can be used against us, how we can then turn it around and use it for good, you know, if we're able to sort of look at it square in the face, is, I think, the way forward. There's no other way. The other issue here is that while we're seeing physical attacks, you touched on it a second ago, there are many more verbal attacks, yeah. and you feel like it's underreported. Absolutely. You know, because people like, you know, you know, if someone's just 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 yelling, you know, chink at you or go back to China or spit and then spitting at you, for the most part, they're not going to get arrested. Uh, that's why the reporting sites like Stop AAPI Hate have been really good because they, they, they're like, no, just come and tell us what's happening so that we can get a measure of the harassment, you know, that's rising because of COVID-19, because of Trump's rhetoric. And that has really helped us you know, sort of have this conversation because without that record keeping data points of things that are not sort of crimes, right, but that are harassment incidents, we wouldn't be able to say, hey, there's 6,000 incidents between March of 2020 till now. And quite honestly, a lot of people have thought, oh, that, that's not very serious. People are just yelling at you and whatever. What, what's the big deal, right? But I, I think of those things as like um, things that indicate like what happened in Atlanta eight people dead, but six of them Asian American women, they're leading up to those things. It's the it's the fact that if you see an Asian person, um, you might blame them, you might feel angry, and then there's a whole spectrum of what you might do. Have you personally had anyone say anything like that to you? You know, I, I haven't. I would say that personally. I feel like, you know, I walk around and I'm a little wary, to be honest with you. I, I sometimes think like, should I go out today if I don't need to and I won't go out? But I have not personally feel uh, experienced or felt any of that. I've, I've really felt positive stuff. I know personally, in the wake of what happened with George Floyd, all of a sudden I felt seen. Like I'd be walking down the street and I felt, you know, we're in New York City, but I felt yeah. seen, right? Like yeah. people would give me like some strange eye contact. They're I'm like, not sure that if you've oh, noticed that in the wake of this as well. Okay. Right. Um, unbelievably, Asian Americans have felt seen for the first time in a long time. And that is new, um, at least in a generation, uh, maybe more. Asian Americans have felt invisible for most of the time that been in, in this country. And the history of Asian American is well over, going back to the 19th century in 18, 1848, 1849. And they have existed here in America sort of on a conditional sort of promise, almost like, you know, like, oh, okay, you can be here as long as there's a use for you. And as soon as your use for you is over or you cross some line, then there's violence or expulsion. Um, those histories are not well known. Um, and they have always just sort of kept their head down and be like, well, I'm just happy to be here, right? And that, that's what they were told. And they kind of went along with it. And occasionally they have been uh, sort of periods where they've burst into the public consciousness. I think that this era, is the first time that Asian Americans have felt like seen uh, in, in a really serious way. And I mean, I think it's connected to BLM. 
uh, to Me Too. Uh, I really think that, you know, some people are like, do I have to choose between those two? And I'm like, no, we're all fighting for the same things. We don't want an equal social society. We want an equal chance to just be human. You know, we don't want to be pegged into any one square or circle. We just want to be who we are. And when you put on your lawyer lens, right, you you have the luxury of being able to see this, hopefully, for many filters. So when you put that no. lens on, what do you think legally should be done? I mean, is there anything that can be done? You know, one of the things that we've been doing is um, talking to district attorneys uh, around uh, New York City, because we're here in New York, right, uh, about things that have happened. And, you know, like people are not saying some people are saying things while they're beating up people like you don't belong here and you go back to china go back to asia that's pretty gonna that's gonna be pretty clear-cut uh, a hate crime enhancement but many of these incidents happen without people saying things uh, but even without saying the the chink word or other things there can be possible hate crime enhancements if uh, you take other evidence into account. And they also have to understand sort of how Asian Americans fall into the hate crimes or into the racial sort of like framework of America, right? And um, that's one of the conversations we've been having with district attorneys that are uh, hearing us or that are willing to sit down and listen to us. So those, because they have an enormous discretion in terms of deciding uh, charges. And we don't want to over-prosecute because you could, you could, because we know how problematic you know, post everything, right? With, with George Floyd is just the latest. We don't want to over-prosecute, but we want to make sure that these crimes, when they call for hate crime enhancements, are done so. And that they're not just sort of passed along and not cared. So as a lawyer, we spent a long time explaining how race operates with Asian Americans. Because race operates with Asian Americans and African Americans and Latinos in, in related but different ways. It's very complex. And most people haven't sort of sat down and thought about it, you know, like, you know, because within our very complicated racial sort of network in America that we exist in, a lot of people haven't thought about it, particularly Asian Americans, you know, and and and, and prosecutors uh, who are, you know, generally white and, and, and don't understand the experience, they're not experts on race. But for the most part, I would say that DAs have been open and we've been trying to have a, a sensitive conversation because we are, of course, at the same time supportive of uh, you know criminal justice reforms, police. So while we advocate for these things, we wanna be careful because we're hearing from sort of the left flank, like no, no police, no nothing, no nothing. And we're like, wait, wait, it can't be nothing. You know what I mean? Because there's no accountability and people feel like they can just, you know, wail on people. And you know, one of the interesting things is that um, I looked into the history, um, you know, in 1850 in California, there was a Supreme Court case, California Supreme Court case, People versus Hall. Uh, three white robbers uh, came upon a Chinese uh, camp, mining camp for gold. That's what they were there for, the gold rush. Uh, they were robbers. Uh, they, they killed one person, Lin Sing, who came to uh, stop them. Uh, they were the One person was found guilty of murder, and he was to be hung. Um, and uh, so great result, right? You know, and the judge was like, don't think you can kill Chinese people, uh, you know, Native Americans or Black people in this jurisdiction and just be free. Don't think you can just do whatever you want. He appealed. There was a statute. Uh, there and then many many other states had the statute that non-white people could not testify against white people in court. Native American, yes, and it's not something we learn, right? You know, uh, mulattoes, Negroes. Like, this is the statute, right? Could not testify against a white man in court because there's no way that your testimony could take away the freedom of a white man, right? And that was the statute that was written before the Chinese came in large numbers, right? And so. Um, the person who was found guilty of murders said, you should extend that statute to Chinese people 
because we have not invited them to be citizens of this country, nor do we want them to be. And they should, their testimony should not put me to death. The California Supreme Court agreed with him and said, no Chinese person, even though it's not in the statute explicitly, they already said no Native Americans, no blacks, no free blacks, nobody. Mm-hmm. So they extended it to Chinese people and, um, and he was freed. And the Frederick Douglass paper, the reporter, because there were not too many uh, African-Americans out in the West, wrote the, the new, this is using the lingo of the day, the, the Chinaman is the Negro of the West. <laughs> you know, and he's like, oh, that, you know, they, they're, they're watching that sort of go on there. And what that does is that it immunizes white violence, you know, against, against Chinese back then, right? Because you could walk through a Chinese camp and be like, I could shoot any of you in the back. And it wouldn't matter. And I think that actually has deep implications for how we, uh, how people see violence against Asians, how non-whites saw violence against each other. They're like, the law won't apply. Do you know what I mean? Like it really, really gets into the mind in a really dangerous way. And, um, and, it, and it makes you invisible in, in the eyes of the law, right? And so I think that's um, something that I've been thinking a lot about because I've just sort of recently reached back into the history. It's always been there. We just don't sort of talk about it too much. I know you're you're what people can't see, but you could see. My eyes were popping as you were describing that. My mouth was yeah. dropping. Um, yeah, I would assume that's the reaction you want, though, when you tell that story. I do, um, although it's there. It's funny, you know. It's not part of. It's there in our history, so it's not like completely erased. But it's not in our history in terms of like, like it, it, I doubt that people in junior high school, and in high school. Uh, we'll be learning about sort of, hey, how does the law reflect what was in society then? And once it comes off the books, because it comes off the books at some time, uh, you know, like, you know, 50, 60 years later, of course, we know that when the laws comes off the books, it's they don't come off society in a very sort of quiet way, right? And I, I, I couldn't help but think about sort of, when we think about people of color on people of color violence, I wonder if there's some legacy of that. I've been thinking about that. You know what I mean? Like sort of like, because if people of color didn't used to be sort of like, you know, part of the law, they were invisible to it. Like, oh, there'd be no consequences. And like, you can only, only if you, you bothered sort of the, the white structure of power, would you be, would you, would you face consequences? But if you went to each other, there'd be no consequences. I mean, I'm still thinking through the, those ideas and the implications, you know, as to like what, 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 what that means to people's mindset that they don't even think about anymore. Um, and so those are the ideas that I've been thinking out, and, and maybe they're the silver lining of the pandemic and the violence that we're in, to understand that there's an origin point. And I think if we, if we can sort of propose an origin point and the problems and how they arise, we can begin to speak explicitly. Back to your uh, you know, original question, I think one of the first questions is, how do we, what do we do? Because I'm, I'm not so sure that we can do anything about you know, stopping stuff right now, because it's happening everywhere all over anytime, like you're just walking and stuff happens. You're like, how do you stop that? You know, you'll be a police state, you know, like if you want to stop it, like every other block, there's someone there. Okay, we can't do that. We don't want to live in a police state. Um, so we got to hold people accountable when those things do happen. We got to try to stop them. But then I think the most important is the medium and long-term is like, how did we get here? You know, what can we do to stop it? What can we do to like make things better? And as a person who is a lawyer, but loves history, and sort of trying to understand how we get here. You know, I think like once we understand that or have a, have a, have a theory, then we can maybe begin to educate each other, talk to each other, tell our stories, and then make things better. 
Yeah, Chris, I think you have a point. I think I just had a, a, a law lesson from you and I hope our listeners did as well and our viewers did as well because this is the kind of the launching point, I feel like what we all need to go from to get further in this discussion. So we appreciate your time. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you again. It's a pleasure. Now let's hear from Tiffany J. Huang, who studies the history of Asians right here in America. She's a PhD student at Columbia and a fellow of the Department of Sociology. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So let's talk about these two communities. A lot of people may not realize this, but they actually have a lot of similarities. What are those similarities? Mm -hmm. So I recently published a paper looking at Asian Americans' attitudes towards other racial and ethnic groups. And I used data from a 2016 survey of Asian Americans that was nationally representative. And what I found was that uh, many Asian Americans feel that they have something in common politically in terms of political power and government representation when it comes to uh, their feelings about Black Americans. And I also found that there was a relationship between Asian Americans who had experienced different forms of discrimination and their feelings of commonalities with other groups. So in my study, I found that Asian Americans who had experienced some form of job discrimination also felt that they had something or a lot in common with Black Americans when it came to political power and government representation. Why do you so think I that think is? I think this suggests that the common experience of having been discriminated against in the U.S. can be something that brings racial minority groups together rather than drives them apart. And you were saying uh, a second ago when we were talking that the, the terminology Asian American goes back to the 60s. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. What's, what's yeah. the history there? Mm -hmm. Well, Asian American uh, is a term that is an umbrella term, and it covers many different groups of various national origins, people who speak many different languages and come from uh, many different cultures. But it was really organizing um, in the 1960s uh, that led to the development of this pan-ethnic identity. So this identity that encompasses many of these groups. Um, and it was organizing that was done in conjunction with Black and Latinx student organizers. How did that come about? Was it just because they were on the campus together and they were talking about their shared experiences? Do you know? Yes, um, there was some of that. Um, and uh, there was organizing on the West Coast in particular in Bay Area schools for ethnic studies and for the recognition that uh, racism was an issue on college campuses. But it feels like this conversation, if people knew that this was out there, right, this was the root of where we where where everything came from, that people would be hopefully more engaged in this concept and then understand what the path forward is and how we need to actually work together. What do you think the the issue is there. I think the issue is a lack of attention to Asian American history uh, over the past decades. Uh, many people now have been realizing this, uh, despite the fact that many Asian American activists have been talking about this for the long for a long time. And so there has been an invisibility uh, of Asian American history in our schools, in our curricula, and that's something that needs to be addressed. So when you sit back and you're and you're talking to other people within your university and you're talking to people within your community, um, what are you guys saying about this conflict? A lot of the conversations that I've had with people have been about how um, this conflict has been weaponized to draw attention away from, again, the roots of anti-Asian racism. It is much easier to pit racial minority groups against each other and focus only on the incidents that have happened. And to be fair, you know, there have been incidents that we shouldn't ignore and that are important to address. 
But we also shouldn't ignore the history of organizing and of solidarity. And it's not fair to the many Black Americans and people in Black communities who have stood up alongside Asian Americans and who have said that this is not acceptable. And what do you think is missing from the conversation that you've had, you know, with other people that you know within your field or also, also within the community? Like, what else do you think is missing? Because it feels like something is missing. I don't know if I'm able to put my thumb on it, but have you been able to? I'm not sure I've been able to put my thumb on it either, but again, I think one of the things that is missing is an understanding of the long history of Asian Americans in this country and the discrimination that they have faced over the years, um, which is, again, not only the most visible physical violent incidents, but things like microaggression discrimination. Um, the history of immigration law that banned Asian Americans from entering this country for several decades. Those are the things that we don't pay enough attention to. Yeah, and I guess if everyone understood that there was a shared collective, I want to even call it a sadness, right? I mean, a sadness mm -hmm. described that portion of history, that maybe there would be some more understanding going forward. Is that correct to describe it as that? Yeah, there is a collective trauma that I think we need to contend with. Thank you, Tiffany. Well, I think I see another paper in your future. <laughs> Probably many more papers on this topic. It's obviously fascinating. Um, you've dedicated your career to doing this. And we see now, given what's happening within New York City and beyond, the need for doing something like this. We appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being with us. And we, we look forward to continuing this conversation with you in the future. Thanks again for having me. Just as Asian American history can inform the current conflicts, a deeper dive into the common crisis in the black community helps explain much of this violence, mental health, and the constant struggle to get help. And now we want to welcome to our podcast, C. Virginia Fields. She is the former borough president of Manhattan and a former city council member. And now she's the founder and CEO of the National Black Leadership Commission on Health. Hi, Virginia. Hi, how are you? And thank you so much. Let's just dive right in. Can we talk about mental health and why you think we're in this position that we're in right now? Well, first of all, I think that uh, a focus on mental health during these very challenging times that we continue to be in with respect to COVID. And I think COVID uh, has unveiled a lot of disparities, including the problems of mental health and mental illnesses. I think uh, we're seeing uh, certainly a lot of uh, violence. We're seeing a lot of uh, um, behaviors that one has to take into consideration the factor of mental health. There are so many factors to look at, including some of the barriers to people getting help, they either don't have access to insurance, stigma is still very much associated with uh, seeking care. People don't want you to know that they're in care because they don't want to think you're crazy. And we know that that is not an issue. Also being misdiagnosed, I've heard of many situations where uh, people and family members have taken their uh, family members to seek help. They've been misdiagnosed, so there have been missed opportunities. And then we have to look at other contributing factors, poverty, homelessness, social isolation. And today, we also have to be very mindful of what we're seeing on TV and what we're hearing. For example, 
when we are hearing and all of us are hearing the same thing, Asians are responsible for the COVID-19 and for a person who is being challenged already and perhaps seeing an Asian person and hearing what they are hearing, it triggers a reaction. So I think all of these factors have to be considered in terms of what we're seeing today. So do you think race is a factor? Absolutely. Race is a major factor in terms of, you know, uh, everything that we're seeing, because I think that when we think about race, it's, uh, and mental health, it's much more complex than just saying race. But let's because, dive into that. So I think our, our listeners, our viewers could use like that deeper conversation on that topic. Right. Okay. I think we need to talk about, you know, trauma. We need to talk about depression. We need to talk about why is it that, uh, uh, let's say, certain Blacks are not diagnosed as properly that perhaps with earlier intervention may help to prevent long-standing problems of mental illness. We have to talk about poor access to care because if a person is uh, struggling with mental health issues and not able to get access to care, and we know that Blacks do not have access to care as needed. They're not, on, they're not insured. And even when care is provided, medication is not adhered to, and that gets you into other issues again, of the rate of homelessness, the rates of poverty, and it's a whole discussion that we just cannot isolate one factor. So what's our path forward? I mean, this, this is just firing off so many questions in my brain. I mean, we all see that this is an issue. So how do we fix it? I think, first of all, we acknowledge that it is a problem. And you're talking about it on your podcast. And hopefully this will not be the last discussion. And we'll have a chance to delve into this much deeper. We have to recognize that it is a problem and that it is impacting our communities and fight for changes, changes in resources, making sure that we have resources for our, uh, for those who need the care, making sure that even in our own personal lives and family lives, when we come against with, a, a, when we're confronted rather with these situations, help move beyond stigma. Let's talk about it and not, hopefully to help people not feel ashamed if they need care. So let's break down the stigma. Let's get the support that people need if they are returning into communities. Let's work with them and make sure that the medications are being adhered to and be very positive about what it is that uh, you know we want to see happen. The other thing about this, though, is while this is an issue, and you're saying that you're seeing it too, a lot of the current politicians aren't saying it that way. They're just saying stop the Asian hate. They're not really getting at what else may be contributing to that. Do you see that as an issue? Absolutely, I see that as an issue as well as a number of other things. Just uh, for example, as we move from, uh, of course, reducing the number of case rates of coronavirus and into the vaccinations, we see a less focus on 
disparities that disproportionately impact Blacks that made us more vulnerable to the virus in the first place. No longer on the front pages, people are moving away from it. So I do see the need for our legislators, our policymakers to do just what we're talking about now. Address mental health, mental illness. Don't just say arrest the people and that will stop the violence. That will not do it. Let's stop the hate in our language. Let's provide the resources. Let's provide the care and let's do something budgetarily and policy-wise that will help move the resources and enable us to do something beyond just saying, stop the violence. All right, Virginia, I think we hear you there. Uh, we appreciate your time today. This is clearly a conversation that you agree with us that we needed to have, but it can't stop here, right? We have to keep going. We have to keep pressing on these issues if we want to improve our community holistically. So we want to thank you again for your time. We really appreciate you providing your insight and let's see what happens from here. Thank you, Virginia. Thank you. And I look forward for us doing this together because all hands need to be on deck and the full community needs to get behind this in conversations and actions. We thank you for joining us. And we also want to thank our production team. That is Melissa Mack, Darren Price, and Ben Berkowitz. I'm your host, Erica Byfield, in for David Ushery. We'll check in with you next time on The Debrief. <laughs>